pray a moment. Lord, thank you this morning as we come to the scriptures. We invite you, come Holy Spirit. Come and fill our hearts and our minds. Come, Lord, fill my words and shape them to be your own. Come, Lord, and lead us to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Back in 2013, Pharrell Williams released a song which was originally written for the movie Despicable Me 2. I suspect some of you know the song. It became wildly successful. It continues to play on the radio today. It's called Happy. It goes like this, because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Because I'm happy, clap along if you know what happiness is to you. It goes on from there. It's all about being happy, and it is a wonderfully catchy tune. I can't help but turn the radio up when I hear it. It's not the first pop song, though, about happiness. Just a few years before, 1988, Bobby McFerrin sang a song that still plays today. It goes like this, don't worry, be happy. Yeah, it was actually one of the first acapella songs to get to the top of the Billboard 100 And I think probably all of us have sung the children's song, or maybe we've sung it to children or grandchildren. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. That was probably sung better than a lot of the worship songs. That we do. So well done, you. You prove my point. We've all, we've all heard it. There's no doubt that happiness is a, a fundamental, supreme, perhaps, value in our culture. It's so important that our country was founded upon it. Think about the Declaration of Independence, which states that we are created equally before God with three unalienable rights including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's woven into the fabric of our country. And as a pastor, many times over the years, I've had people who have come to me in the midst of of a crisis, in the midst of maybe a marriage that was really struggling, in the midst of a difficulty in school or with relationships, in the hardship of life, and they often will say, Chris, I just want to be happy. Maybe you found yourself saying that too at some point along the way. I just want to be happy. Jesus has a lot to say about happiness too. In fact, our gospel lesson, which I read there a few moments ago in Luke 6, verses 20 through 26, it's about how to be happy Jesus' way. And you'll notice uh, it doesn't have the word happiness in it. He uses the word blessed, but that's a New Testament word for happy. It's the word makarios in the Greek. He uses it four times. He says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. And it goes on from there. Blessed, makarios, happy in the Bible is more than just the way we tend to think about that word. 
For us, happiness tends to be about the circumstances of our life generally going our way, generally things going in the way we would like, things going smoothly, going the way I had hoped. But as you hear those statements that I read, as you look at those words in our text from Jesus, those words of happiness that Jesus makes are not the kind of things that you generally hear trending on social media. In fact, most people on social media are trying to tell us about the happiness of their life completely opposite of those phrases and statements Jesus made. This word makarios means blessed by God or receiving God's favor. And it has really to do with spiritual prosperity, spiritual blessedness, blessedness, happiness, favor with God. According to Jesus here in Luke's version, it's for the poor, it's for the hungry, it's for the sad, it's for the expendable. And he goes on to say, woe or emptiness, fruitlessness, pain, grief is for the rich, the full, the laughing, and the popular. And if you're like me and you hear those words, you've got to be going, say what? What, what in the world? Has is, is Jesus lost his mind? Because I'm sure there were people that day who were listening to him who were completely convinced that he was bonkers. What he's trying to show us is the upside down, the upside down nature of God's ways and God's kingdom. They're completely opposite the ways of the world, the ways most of us tend to go through life. Now, let's remember the context. As Jesus is giving this sermon, some call it the Sermon on the Mount, some call it the Sermon on the Plain, remember that he's just spent a whole night in prayer before God. He's done that because just prior to that, the Pharisees have essentially determined that they're going to kill him. There's a decided shift in the Gospel of Luke beginning at the end of chapter 5 and at the beginning of chapter 6. There's this movement away from everything's pretty good with a little bit of maybe questioning, particularly from the leaders and the Pharisees. The movement is to, it's good in the crowds, but the Pharisees have determined they are going to kill him. And so from chapter six on out, the specter and shadow of the cross falls over everything. Now that's why Jesus came, of course. He came to offer his life as a ransom for sin. He came to give himself to redeem you and me to God. And that cross shadowing everything begins to color all he is doing. That's why he picked the 12 and named them apostles. It was because he needed to pour into a small group of people so that they would understand the kingdom and be prepared for after his death and resurrection and ascension so that they would be prepared to carry on his ministry in the days ahead. That's the context that we find ourselves in. Jesus has come down, having appointed the 12, naming them apostles. He's healing people. People have come from all around. I mean, it's a a zoo, y'all. Could be thousands of people coming from as far as 80 miles away, which to us isn't that far, but to them who had to walk everywhere through the desert to get there, where there's not a lot of water, where there's a lot of dust, where there's not a corner grocery store every nine yards. To them, it's, it's a long way. 
and it's a sort of circus-like scene. It's a chaotic event, and he's been healing. They've come to seek help, to be healed, to be delivered, and we're told he heals them all. And it's right there, right in the middle of the circus with the crowds and the multitudes, with the disciples and the apostles and just kind of everyday people who've come to seek to figure out who he is and to get something from him. It's in the middle of that that he tells his would-be disciples, his followers, what happiness and blessedness and favor with God is all about. What a life following Jesus actually involves, and it's the upside down. It's the upside down of life with God. And I've been sitting under these words all week, as I, as I do before preaching. I, I gotta be honest with you, they're not necessarily the things I value. And I suspect they're probably not the kind of things most of you value either. I mean, poverty and hunger, who wants that? Uh, expendability, who wants that? Not being loved or being rejected, who wants that? See, I'm tempted this morning to lighten the words of Jesus. That's what preachers are always tempted to do when we get to the hard sayings of the Bible. And these are some of those hard sayings. The temptation is to explain it all away, to make it feel very gentle and palatable to our Western sensibilities. But when we do that, or when I have given in to that temptation, we end up, well, we end up missing perhaps what the Holy Spirit wants to show us and build into our lives. See, it'd be easy for me this morning to quickly jump to Matthew's version. And that's scripture. Matthew's version says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and that's true. That's right. Those are Jesus's words. But Luke's version says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. And, and I don't like that. It's so raw. I mean, these are some of the most raw words of Jesus for us sitting far away from that time who live in relative ease. God's favor, God's blessing, true happiness is not for the self-made. It's not for the self-satisfied. It's not for the self-reliant. It's not for the wildly popular. It's not for the ones who don't care. It's not for those who do not know their desperation, their absolute desperation before God. And, and that's what poverty and hunger and mourning and rejection all feel like. They feel like desperation if you've ever been in them. There's a sense of desperateness. I, I don't live in that very often. I, I, I was thinking, where are the moments in my life where I've lived in that place? Often it's, it's like... It's often when I'm hiking that I find myself desperate. Uh, some of the men know what I'm talking about. I, I did a 60-mile hike last summer on sabbatical, and I got desperate multiple times on that hike because I was alone, and I was way out, and there was nobody there, and there were bears. No, no, I mean, there were bears, and there were bees, and I, I don't like bees. I'm allergic to bees. And there were bees all around. And, and then I got caught in a long, long, extended lightning storm on the side of a mountain holding an aluminum hiking pole. I was desperate. I was panicked. I was afraid. Those are the kind of moments. And do we have any sailors in here? Sailors know a little bit about desperation. 
Any golfers in here? No, that's a joke. I'm kidding. That's, I don't want to belittle this thing, but, but, I, but I know there's an intensity to this today. But, you know, there are times and places, particularly, I think, when the world shows itself to be bigger than us, where we begin to touch upon some of these things that he's, that he's dealing with. A lot of the world lives in the middle of these things every single day. Jesus tells us that happiness and blessedness is for those who have nothing to fall back upon except God himself. That's what it all boils down to. If we were to just kind of dive down into a nutshell, that happiness, blessedness, the favor of God is for those who really have nothing to fall back upon except upon God himself. It's for desperate and needy and unpopular and dependent people. We've got pictures in our house. I know some of you who have children or younger children have them all on your phones. But our kids lived at the time in which you actually took pictures and had them developed. And and so we have got these pictures all over our house. They're hung up. They're on the mantle. Pictures of when they were little. Pictures of when they were children, especially, it seems, when they were itty-bitty children. Whether they were laughing or they were crying, whether you know they're half-dressed or they're in their little John Johns and smock dresses, all prettied up, whether they look nice and tidy or you know they're covered in spaghetti, whether they are crying or gently resting in our arms, the thing about all of those pictures that I notice is that, that those children were completely dependent. They were completely dependent upon us for their lives and their needs and their everything. And here's the thing. They simply trusted us to provide those things, to provide their needs. There wasn't a question. They expected and depended upon us to provide for them. And and that's what Jesus is getting at here in the rawness of this text, in the shock value of what he's saying Blessedness and happiness and favor with God is for those who are dependent upon God. And of course, Jesus will say, not just those who are dependent on God in a sort of macro sense, but dependent upon Jesus. Dependent upon Jesus. So this morning, I think we have to ask the question, what do you do with this? Because it's not meant... And, and this I would guard, ask you to guard your hearts from. It's not meant to make you feel condemned if you recognize you're not poor or you're not hungry or you're not grieving. That, that's not the point. That, that would be the enemy's desire to send you out of here feeling guilty or ashamed. The Spirit of God comes, though, always to show, to convict, to lead us to Christ, to show us the true state of who we are and to bring us to Jesus. So, so what do you do with this text? What do you do with these words today? Well, I think, I think what I would advise, and it's what I've, I've been doing all week, is, is you just sit in the posture of Lent today. We want to jump to Easter, I know. And we are going to celebrate as we receive communion. We recognize his body broken for us, as we recognize the great gift he gave us. But, but there is time and space, and we make this intentionally in our Anglican world for us to let the Spirit delve into our hearts in order to make us available for Christ. And so in the Spirit of Lent, you might simply admit 
Jesus, you're right. Jesus, what you have to say is right. And you might confess the places where your attitude, your desires, your pursuits are not in alignment with his word. You know, we're raising up a whole generation of kids, young people, and we're infusing in them often values completely opposite of what he says here in this sermon. And as a parent, we might have to repent of that. Where we lack urgency about ultimate things, where we are careless about eternity, and where we resist being dependent upon God for all things, those are places for us just to own and to bring to the cross the place of forgiveness and to say, oh Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. My unruly will will never be tamed unless by your grace and by your spirit you tame it. So we start in that place. I encourage that in your heart this morning. And then I think, secondly, that we might consider making our prayer this. To ask Jesus, I I, I encourage you to ask Jesus to make your heart desperate for him, longing for him, desiring for him, dependent upon him above all else. Because that has to be a work of grace or else you'll always end up in either religious work striving or you'll end up under a burden of shame. But I think it's his desire that we would come to him to say, Lord, make my heart desire you above everything else. Would you do the work in me? That's really repentance, isn't it? We turn away from one thing and we turn to God in desperate need, like those children I was explaining, just in his arms, asking for him to do in us that which we cannot do for ourselves. But your will has to be involved a little bit. You have to take a little step toward him. It's always a step in response to a grace. And grace, as we sang, is what ultimately will change us. Reminded of a story. I've told it before, but it's probably worth repeating. It's a story about a young man who heard one day in church the preacher man saying that you can have Jesus if you want him. And that young man, being kind of a careless guy, came to him after the service and said, well, preacher man, you say I can have this Jesus? Do you really mean it? And the preacher said, yeah. Do you really mean it? And the guy says, well, yeah. And so the preacher says, well, follow me. And he took him down to the water, like our ocean, just a block or two away. And the preacher man walked out into the water and said, follow me. And the young guy kind of cautiously stepped out there, and they got out to about waist high. And That old preacher said, are you sure that you really want Jesus? And the man said, yeah. This young guy, sure. So the preacher grabbed him and put him down under the water and just held him there. And then he pulled him up. What is it you want? And the young guy said, Jesus? The preacher grabbed him and put him down under the water again and just held him there. Pulled him back up. What is it you want? Jesus, and he grabbed him and held him down under the water again, and he held him, and he whistled, don't worry. He he held him under the water, he held him under the water, he held him under the water, he pulled him up, and he said, what is it you want? The young man said, I want air. 
He said, when you want Jesus like you want air, then you will have Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we confess or we grow comfortable or our hearts actually desire things that aren't your best where we look for our security and our identity and our significance in things and in ways that you've never told us to find them in. And Lord, we don't know what to do with that. So we just come before you today knowing that we come to a throne of grace and we confess, yes, this is who we are. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do a deep work in our lives that we might truly know the kingdom. We might truly know your joy. We might truly know fullness. But we know it because we've received it by your spirit through grace because we've received you, Jesus. We invite you to do a deep work within us that we might rejoice. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.